It's been a week that you've been in this hotel room. You light a cigarette and take a drink the second you wake up, but you don't remember falling asleep. You just remember tears and pain. There's nothing left for you now but this godforsaken jungle and this godforsaken war. Then, one day, you get a mission. A mission that will bring you further into the jungle than you've ever been. But you're ready, right? Right? I'm Pete. And this week, we're having a flashback to Apocalypse Now, here on Real of Thieves. Hey everybody, I'm Pete, and this is Real of Thieves, a show where we go over all the references, riffs, and history of your favorite stuff, and today, we're continuing our series on adaptations with Apocalypse Now. For those of you who don't know, this is a loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness by Sir Joseph Conrad. Both of these pieces are near and dear to my heart, but first, got some things at the tippity-toppy-top. If you want to get a hold of me, Twitter, IG, at Real of Thieves, email realofthieves at gmail.com. I'd love, love, love to hear from you. It'd be pretty sweet. Want some ways to support the show? Why not start with leaving a rating and review? It lets people know that you like it, but also that people listen to my show. Algorithms need positive encouragement to be the best they can be. So help this little indie guy out today. Are you a Kindle Unlimited subscriber? What? <laughs> Wait, you are? Oh my gosh. Do you want a novelette that's included in your subscription? Where Skin Once Was is a Kindle Unlimited exclusive. I'm super proud of it. I think you're going to love it too. You can also read my journalism over on dorkdaily.com. It's a cool place with a great community. If you're in the shut up and take my money mood, why not throw some this way, bruh? Consider sending me a tip on Good Pods or subscribing to the show on Anchor. And if you subscribe on Anchor, you get added to the show notes every single week. All right, let's jump into the thick of it. Apocalypse Now was a film I was exposed to initially when I was in high school, which from my research is when a lot of cisgender white guys watched it. Good to know I'm still character one basic bitch on the character creation screen. What I went on to find out later was that this was an adaptation of Sir Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. The movie inevitably led me to the book, which I also fell in love with, but I could never tell you why. It's not a pleasant novella to read in terms of subject matter, but there is something about the descent into darkness that I think speaks to a lot of angsty teenage boys. At their respective cores, that's what these pieces are all about. However, when doing research for this episode and listening to podcasts like episode 24 of The Cinephiles, for example, then watching Hearts of Darkness, which I highly recommend, one thing is incredibly, incredibly clear to me now. Never make a movie like this ever again. Never. Don't do it. Especially with this budget. Especially with how he even got the money for the budget. Jesus Christ, the man mortgaged his house for this. Don't ever, ever do this again. What the documentary also shows is exactly where Nicolas Cage gets his energy from. And it's from Uncle Frank. They are kindred souls, and I'm convinced after watching this documentary. The way they follow their inspiration whenever, wherever it takes them, regardless of the consequences to themselves or those around them, is both awe-inspiring and fucking terrifying. But this methodology that Francis Ford Coppola has didn't just come out of nowhere. No, this was part of a rising movement in American cinema called The American New Wave. A spiritual successor to the French New Wave, this movement was trying to basically replicate it here in the U.S. The ideals of New Wave cinema typically forego plot structure, including scripts, altogether. Actors were meant to find their character through exploration and living in their skin. 
method actors blended brilliantly with the style, including actors like Marlon Brando, who became the poster boy of every male actor going forward. So what happens when you throw out the script and plot points of a story you're adapting? That's actually an interesting question when you think about it. Because for it to be a successful adaptation, there needs to be a root for both things to exist on. There are some here and there, but they're loose in comparison to last week's very close-to-text adaptation of Dune. What we get is, in a way, a film adaptation closer to one of a Shakespearean play than of a novella. One that takes liberties with the source material, adds more source material, adds more stuff, decides, hey, let's try this. Oh, guys, I know there's this tree five miles away. And it actually turns out pretty okay, considering. I'd actually say it's pretty damn good. But there's this kind of overall question I have with Apocalypse Now that I'm not sure I share with a lot of other viewers, which is, what could this movie have been given a solid plan with time to play built into the schedule? I think this would have actually made a better adaptation of the source material, but would that have made it a better film? Maybe a more focused and concise film, but a more powerful film tonally? I think that's actually something worth thinking about. And before we go any further, I need to add a spoiler warning for Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness, but I also want to add a content warning. This episode is going to be discussing a novella that 100% has language and characterizations of people that are not okay in any way whatsoever. The whole idea of savagery and primal behavior is from imperialist colonizers who wanted to stamp out a culture to make it more French or English or Spanish. They defended their land, and they were treated as though not welcoming these invaders was somehow less human than what the invaders were doing to their people. The film, unfortunately, uses this language and characterization as well. And no matter the intention of the artists involved and their anti-colonist or anti-indigenous or anti-war kind of messages, I'm not exactly sure they were successful at being completely anti-racist while doing it. So, what did they actually use from Heart of Darkness? Well, there's a boat ride on a river away from society, a man tasked with finding Kurtz, a kick-ass spear throw, a patchwork commie, and Kurtz's final words. That's kind of it. But that gives us something to work with. Not a lot! I am talking breadcrumbs compared to what Dennis Villeneuve did with Dune, but that gives this movie its own unique identity. This was made at the end of the American New Wave, and that was really what was paramount for auteurs, not being accurate to someone else's work. Now, this method of filmmaking, very improvisational, very mood-based, while based in realism, still dreamlike and painting-like in its execution, works incredibly well with The Godfather. One might say that it's a much more faithful adaptation to the source material as well, but this could have given Coppola the feeling of claustrophobia creatively. I think his creative choices that broke away actually added to the two-part epic of The Godfather quite well. And that gives Coppola a lot of weight. It allows him to say, let me show you what I can do with this on my own, no strings attached. And thanks to The Godfather, part one and two, He's pretty successful. They, being the studios, who are broken, destitute, desperately trying to find something to fuel their addictions to success and affirmation from the public, are desperate for success again. So far, since the Hays Code was lifted and these French motherfuckers made film schools, people think film is this respectable art form again, worthy of critique and awards and praise. Why don't we go this way and see what happens? The fact that he had a decent budget from major places and he still had to mortgage his own shit says a lot about how far off track this went. 
While I question if a plan would have made the movie better overall, there's no question that if he had actually followed a plan, the American New Wave would have lasted longer and influenced more people. This film, as brilliant as it is, was completely toxic for everyone to make, and that makes studios question a lot about where they put their money. They start borrowing tactics from speculative investing as a result of productions like Apocalypse Now. It helps to usher in the new era of Hollywood moneyballing, which to this day still affects a lot of decisions in the boardroom. It is held up as the example in film schools, sometimes, of what not to do. Yet, if you watch Apocalypse Now without the backstory, even without the source material, it shines as an example best described on the podcast, Show Me the Meaning. It's a mood poem. It's a movie about a state of mind and an emotion, and how do we get through that? It's a movie that questions the effects of war on different types of Americans and what lies within the jungle for all of us. But how that story gets told through the main character narrative of Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness, respectively, is very, very different because who they're talking to are also very different. So in Heart of Darkness, Marlowe, spelled M-A-R-L-O-W, remember that, is a seasoned sailor who was, while waiting for his new ship to leave port, telling his crew about a time when he was younger and less experienced working for British ivory traders in Africa. The company, as he so ominously calls him, tasks him with locating and bringing home one Mr. Kurtz, the best damn trader this side of the Atlantic. His quarterly reports would make workers from office space smash their PCs on principle alone. There's no competition. This guy's the best, and he deserves a reward. As Marlowe descends down the river and further into mainland Africa, away from the British colonies and the ports, those civilized folk start acting way crazier. Delay after delay after delay causes Marlowe to get frustrated and angry, but determined to find Kurtz. He hears at every stop how amazing this man is, and those in the jungle have formed somewhat of a cult of personality around the man. He is, by all accounts, worshipped, and that worship is stronger the further inland we go. At one point, the boat ferryman gets killed by arrows while the boat is attacked by tribal warriors under the order of Kurtz. After all, this place is his ivory port. This is his corner. You back off, bro. So Marlowe decides to throw this guy's body somewhere for alligators to eat because his crew is mostly made of cannibals and he doesn't want them to eat the body. But that would have been a great way to cement loyalty with the crew. Yo, Steve's dead. He was cool, but I know you guys will put him to good use. Guess who they won't eat? Because you didn't throw a perfectly good body to alligators or piranhas. You. Because you understood their culture. They're going to eat Marlowe this first chance they get right out of spite. It's like sending your food back to the restaurant. You just, you just don't do it. Eventually, we meet a Russian guy who made some really bad vodka on his stove, didn't do the flame test I learned on a show from the Travel Channel that one time, and now wears a patchwork suit, worshipping Kurtz like Jesus Christ. Also... Kurtz decides to make a fence out of severed heads and posts because, you know, we've got to keep these savages in check. They aren't civilized folk. Turns out, Kurtz has become completely emaciated and filled with malaria because the forest doesn't care about quarterlies, just about killing things for fertilizer. Hashtag Earth Justice. So Marlowe convinces Kurtz that he can leave and come home, but on the way home, he dies whispering, the horror 
Horror. When he gets back, he turns in everything to the proper people and tells his fiance that his last words were her name, not, you know, what he said while he stared into the pits of hell. In Apocalypse Now, we're in a bit of an antithetical journey to Marlowe's. For one, Martin Sheen's character is Willard, which has elements of Marlowe's name, but in reverse. It's not a one-to-one, but it's way too close for me not to point out. Especially given that this anti-Marlowe motif is done more throughout the film. Mr. Kurtz is replaced with Colonel Kurtz, who the government wishes to be terminated with extreme prejudice, not brought home for rewards. He isn't some well-known cult of personality, rather he's a ghost who's turned into a monster. He was already given prestige and was offered even more, but decided to turn it away, choosing Vietnam. The journey to Kurtz is done in reverse. Instead of going further inward and down into Africa, we're going upward and north into Cambodia. We don't have some giant crew on a steamboat of 20-something cannibals. We're on a small river patrol boat where five is already way too crowded. Kurtz isn't some gaunt shell of a man. He's thick, heavy, healthy, eating everyone's food, and completely drunk on power. He's not punished by the jungle. He's kind of rewarded for his savagery. It's up to Willard, to humanity, to clean up its own mess. And in the end, Willard kills Kurtz. But that killing is merciful, borderline spiritual, sacrificial. And Willard becomes Kurtz. Being Kurtz's mirror, he makes the opposite decision, deciding to leave the tribe that would now worship him like a god returning to society to await his next mission. Everyone they meet along the way knows nothing of their mission or of Kurtz's existence. Rather, each place is kind of respective and representative of a circle of hell from Dante's Inferno, culminating in the final circle of pride where Kurtz resides. Each has its own issue, its own resonance, and its own price for which they must go as they descend deeper into hell through what appears on the Google Maps app, like an ascension upward towards a goal. There are also moments in each piece of political commentary that, depending on who you ask, land with weight and meaning or ruin the whole thing. <coughs> French plantation scene, oh my God. Where did that come from? Jesus, I'm sorry. But let's look at a less controversial example, which I'm surprised isn't more controversial, and that's Kilgore and his men taking the beach early in the movie. So Kilgore, played by Robert Duvall, is a stand-in for your atypical cowboy during the Civil War kind of character. He's gung-ho, John Wayne American as a bald eagle eating apple pie with a baseball bat, and he's willing to do anything to oppress a celebrity who came to his neck of the woods. But the helicopters coming in are blasting an orchestral song. It sounds epic, and it's probably one you've heard of in commercials, or maybe even a little cartoon called What's Opera Doc from the late 1950s Looney Tunes catalog. Elmer Fudd sings... Kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. The original song is called Rise of the Valkyries. It's from a German opera by Richard Wagner called Der Ring des Nibelungen. Oh my, I'm so sorry. Its feature film debut was in a German propaganda film called Birth of a Nation about the rise of the Nazi party. I don't think Coppola did this as a mistake. I'm pretty sure it was on purpose. He's inferring that the American soldiers in Vietnam were acting like Nazi Germany. To be fair, Nazi Germany also invaded Northern Africa and tried to set up colonies where they could fight Indiana Jones over dead people's baubles, so. But this isn't something to be taken lightly. The fact that Kilgore chooses this also shows how oblivious and ignorant he is to the history of the things he finds himself around. We've got to talk about his most famous line of the film, 
it's actually a tiny little monologue that usually gets cut off by people using just that first crazy line in super cuts of classic movies you're supposed to watch before you die on YouTube. I know that's super specific, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'd like to read the full monologue here so we can kind of break his character down a little bit more. You smell that? You smell that? Napalm, son. No one else in the world smells like that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hill bombed for 12 hours. When it was over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking dink body. The smell, you know, that gasoline smell, the whole hill. Smell like victory. Someday this war is gonna end. Now that last sentence feels off, right? But the way Duval delivers it, they're tonally very different as well, which is what I kind of tried to do there. This reminiscence, this war story, is one of the fondest memories this man has. It's like he's telling the story of a high school quarterback throwing him the game-winning pass and they went to the championship. Then the smack of reality after a beat or two. Someday, this war's gonna end. And he says it like his life is going to be over. It's just that this is the best his life's gonna get. This is the best his existence is ever gonna be. Compare that to the bridge scene, which Kilgore and his men would probably die fairly quickly in, and I'm actually not kidding. He is not actually built for that in my mind. He'd end up like the guy freaking out shooting into the darkness before they called for Roach. Because if this is Dante's Inferno, we're actually at the circle before the final one, and Coppola does reference Dante's Inferno a lot in this film, with the little places that they go to. Kilgore is very much in the first circle of hell. I mean, don't get me wrong, getting chased by killer bees, hashtag Wu-Tang is forever, does sound bad, but not like Doolong Bridge bad. I mean, Lance trips acid for the rest of the film starting at this point. And all I can look at is how pretty the fireballs are and how off-kilter carnival music is just like going to its own drum, man, you dig far out, groovy. And it looks like Lance is one of several people that made the same decision. Willard, on the other hand, doesn't need drugs because he's stuck with the film noir lighting inside of a Louisiana Dollar General. Each part of this scene shows how badly war breaks a soldier in this level of intensity. The panic, the anxiety, the playing dead, the get high and try again later option, the get high and become John Wick with a grenade launcher option. By the way, Roach is probably my favorite part of this scene. They come to him like, He's a last resort warrior monk. And how he answers Willard's question. Hey, son, do you know who's in charge here? And how does he answer? He answers with this simple, happy, yeah. Like the way the fucking Joker would have answered him. Yeah. <laughs> but this is as insane as it gets for most of these soldiers. What happens next is actually outside of the scope of this war. Literally, we're in Cambodia. That's where Kurtz's encampment is. First, we lose our young gunman, played brilliantly by a young Lawrence Fishburne, which is extremely depressing. We're like losing pieces of ourselves here as we're moving forward. Then our captain gets wrecked by a spear on a spinny teacup boat ride. And the only scene where we're super close to the book, but he tries desperately to get revenge on Willard and take him out on the spear because he's the one that drug him into hell. Then we get captured. But Chef seems to be doing okay for a minute. Oh, that doesn't last long. He gets beheaded and is left to stare at Willard in his cage in Willard's lap, which totally breaks Willard's sanity. 
But seriously, why is Lance just okay? Is the jungle and tribe kind of like protecting him sort of because of the acid? It, fe it feels like a yes, right? It feels like it's because of the acid. Now, Dennis Hopper was in this movie originally as Willard, but he lost it to Martin Sheen after shooting for weeks. But because he's Dennis Hopper, he says, but I can't just like leave, man, and decides to just keep reading the book over and over and over again because he had it on set. He comes up to Coppola and goes, wait, I can be the Russian. Make me the Russian. Dennis Hopper's take on the Russian, which is totally improvised, is a last-ditch effort to stay employed on a film he was fired from. <laughs> like, I see why people say sometimes it's impossible not to love Dennis Hopper, because holy shit, that is tenacious. And much like Kilgore, another amazing performance that ends up defining his career. The ending with the juxtaposition of the sacrificial killings is actually really great editing and cinematography. I understand also what Coppola was trying to say, that... Willard is actually sacrificing this water buffalo of a man. And it's also implied through the editing that this is a ritual that Willard has done before. I mean, in the beginning, you see him covered in mud walking through the temple, but that's implied to be a flashback to a previous mission. Now, outside of Ride of the Valkyries, the handful of times we reference Heart of Darkness in one line I found on IMDb referencing a movie from the 1940s, there's really nothing else in here that's taken from the source material. What was used... The most was the artistic movement tropes of the time, and they were applied to a Hollywood war epic. Now, was it successful? Just the movie, yes. But the whole picture, I'm not quite sure. It's the biggest double-edged sword of a film for a filmmaker that I've ever had the pleasure of watching, of experiencing. And even with all of the trouble, I couldn't recommend more for you to dive in and see all of the tiny details and nuances and history of this film, if you're up for it. It is definitely one that can be tough. Sometimes art can be that way. But also, be kind to yourself when something isn't right for you. Don't take it as a challenge. Now, before I let you go, it's that time again. This week, we've got another homework assignment. If you were to do a loose adaptation for a novel and it was going to be set anywhere, at any time, what would you make? Brainstorm some ideas, pick a cool one, then adapt one scene into script format. This is actually one from my university days that I've done myself. I took the Stella scene from A Streetcar Named Desire and decided to set it in 1970s South Philadelphia. I had a different visual motifs, even a different delivery and canis of Marlon Brando's famous line. I made it all my own. Another was a Shakespeare one. I'll save that for our Shakespeare adaptation episode, though. Don't be a troll. Be an artist. I will see you next week here on Reel of Thieves. Peace.